Mormon Stories Podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to Mormon Stories are fully tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonstories.org. All right, Terrell. Well, we've covered uh, a lot of ground. And in terms of the foundations of your testimony, we've covered God and and Jesus, or the Savior. And we've started talking about the Restoration. But um, now I'd like to just ask you, you know, a a lot of people trip up on the history. And and as you say, again, in your book, um, People of Paradox, in so many ways, the, the way the church has been set up, it does in many ways rise and fall on its own history. And so a lot of people find uh, the history, you know, uh, problematic. We've, we've discussed that some, I would say a big portion of that um, problematic history can be put in the category of just being disappointed that the history, the version of the history you heard is different from kind of what a more careful read would uncover. So there's that whole disenchantment um, factor. But even even if you set that aside and you were just to kind of take a reasonable person and walk them through LDS church history, I guess like with any religion, you're going to find things that are kind of troubling or hard to believe or something to that effect. So if it's okay, I'm just going to ask you how you work through um some of the more difficult historical aspects that people struggle with. And, um, and uh, if we reach a point where, you know, the answer is the same, in other words, you know, maybe it's, I don't know, or maybe it's, that's a tough one, or maybe it's like, you know, profits are fallible. It's okay to, uh, to just kind of re- restate that premise, you know, and not have to go into detail. But let's, okay, so if I if I oh. plead the the fifth two times, we move on. Right? <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's fine. Um, yeah, and and you can say I just I'm not comfortable answering that too. So, but um, I guess the first um, I guess the very first problem, if we look historically, that many people have is with the first vision and the multiple accounts. And you know, most of our listeners will know this, but. But um, the very first historical account of Joseph Smith's first vision is different than the second, different from the third. Some say substantively different, and others say, like Richard Bushman, that it's just different perspectives with age. How do you how do you make sense of all that? Well, I don't find any real substantive problems in the differing accounts of the first vision. I think. Joseph is writing these under very, very different historical conditions and circumstances. So I think one evolution that we see is a sense in the first vision, the first account, that he hadn't fully, I think, captured the implications of his experience in terms of the the, the, the global future and destiny of, of, the, of the church that grows out of these initial spiritual experiences. Um, whereas I think later there's more of a concern and an attention to what the implications were of what he learned for a dispensational history of apostasy and restoration. So part of it is the difference between a personal, a personal conversion narrative that he's recounting and the opening of a new dispensation. I do think it's significant that throughout his life, Joseph referred to the year 1827 as the beginning of his prophetic career. So he always seemed to see the, the, his receipt of the gold plates as what really marked him as a prophet. And I think this is one of the, one of the mistakes we make in telling our history is to refer to the young boy prophet. He's not a prophet in 1820. He's not called as a prophet. He doesn't see himself as a prophet, and he never did see himself as a prophet in the year 1820 when he had those those first visionary experiences. Um, the main contradiction that you're probably that you probably have in mind is the the sense that in the first vision there's only one God, one being that he sees, where in subsequent descriptions there are two. Uh, 
In the, in the first version of the first vision, right? Yeah. He says, and, I was visited by the Lord or something like that. Well, what he, what he says is in the 1832 account, he says exactly this. He says, the Lord opened the heavens upon me and I saw the Lord and he spake unto me. So he says, I saw the Lord and then the Lord spake unto me. Now, some church historians have suggested that he may have had in mind two different personages, even in that retelling. I see the Lord, God the Father, I, and then the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to me. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I think there's certainly enough ambiguity there that one can't claim there's an obvious de facto contradiction between those those accounts. Um, so that's, I mean, I, I, I think there are a lot of other more difficult hurdles in early church history than that particular example. Okay. And, and for someone who were to say, look, if you see God in Jesus, you're going to, um, you're going to, you know, mention both of them it, kind of explicitly. You don't, you don't buy that? I don't know. <laughs> you, do you sympathize with it? I, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, if, if, if it's possible by any stretch of the imagination to imagine that kind of a theophany, um, who knows, how could we possibly tell what we would find most memorable or most salient in our retelling of it? I mean, I find it time and again astounding that Joseph found remarkable things that I would have thought were rather secondary. When he comes back from having received the gold plates, presumably, all he can think about is the Urim and Thummim. That's what he, that's what the first two eyewitness accounts of, of his immediate response to that experience describe. He's all excited by the Urim and Thummim, not the gold plates. But then you think about it and, well, that makes a kind of sense. Why should he be excited? about a bunch of gold plates written in a strange language that he can't make sense of. Whereas the Urim and Thummim is this instrument that is immediately accessible to him. Similarly, according to Lucy Mack's account, right, he comes back and he says, I've learned for myself that Presbyterianism isn't true. Um, well, you'd think it was rather more significant that he'd learned that there's a real God. Um, I, I don't know. The, the fact that what he does tell us in the first account is that God forgave his sins seems to me to have a kind of psychological realism if the reason he went to the grove was because of concern over his own sinful condition and he found personal remission at the hands of, an, of, of a Christ who appeared to him. The fact that there's a God, the Father, introducing him in the background might have not have loomed large, I think. And, so, and in so many... Um, Okay, so maybe this isn't a terrible place to introduce this idea. Um, when I when I originally stumbled on uh, Hugh Nibley's "No, ma'am, that's not history," that was the first time that I even heard of I think probably the term apologetics or apologist. You know, because I I was just a believer until I like had a really significant question, and and I was so disappointed with that book because it didn't seem to address the merits of. Fon Brody's book at all. And ever since then, ever since then, I've always thought of apologetics in terms, in a negative way. Not because I want to, but because like it always felt like, it always, well, aside from the ad hominem attacks that sometimes have been used in the past, and aside from like really trying to stretch logic to sort of make a justification like, like we've talked about in the past that Maybe when the Book of Mormon says horse, it really meant taper. Um, it seems like so much of traditional Mormon apologetics is trying trying to just uh, expose plausible deniability. You know, try, trying to uncover some plausible deniability so that there's no smoking gun. It's not trying to build a credible case. It's just trying to say, well, it's possible. It's still possible that this happened even though there's some data that might suggest to some that it's not. So we talked a little bit about apologetics before uh, in, a, in a phone call pre preparing for this talk, but tell me, tell me how you see the role of apologetics and, and where you see yourself in apologetics so that we can kind of frame some of this that we're doing. Well, I don't see myself personally as involved in apologetics. Of course, mm -hmm. there might be a difference of opinion among the audience, uh, reading my books. But first of all, I, I'm uncomfortable with the word apologetics 
almost in any context where it's used today because it's it has so much baggage attached to it. It reminds me of Martin Marty when he was interviewed in the aftermath of the David Koresh fiasco in Waco. He was asked by an NPR interviewer, how do you define cult? And Martin Marty said, oh, that's easy. Cult means you belong to a church I don't like. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and so apologist in the way that it's used today usually means you're defending something that I don't think is defensible or you're defending it in inauthentic ways. Um, insofar, though, as I think apologetics does have a respectable history and early church history. I think that the job of apologetics is to cut through the white noise, to try to sift out of the debate red herrings and bad information, and create the conditions for a genuine conversation, and to make it um, to make the faith at least not intellectually implausible. I think what Austin Ferrer says in this regard is is accurate that. Scholarship, for example, can't create faith, but it can create the conditions under which it's possible for faith to flourish. Hmm. So that's the job, I think, of a good apologist, is not to convince or persuade, but to make belief intellectually legitimate and respectable, if that's uh, what one chooses to do. Okay, and so so the the net the net issue that most people have, or the accusation that people have about the first vision story, it's not its not that you can't put them all together and kind of say that none necessarily contradict each other, that each separate account is primarily additive and providing detail or different perspective. It's just sort of, it sort of starts from this assumption that um, the story shouldn't change so much over time, that it just seems like with each account, there's more detail. It's it's kind of like the fish that grows bigger and bigger each time uh, someone tells about the fish they caught. You know, it just keeps growing, and that's kind of the accusation that that you know, and maybe the most maybe one of the most um, relevant or difficult parts about it is that if you look at the Book of Mormon text, it seems to to uh, it seems to envision sort of a, a classic Trinitarian view. Of God, that God, I think even in the Book of Mormon somewhere it says, you know, God and Christ are one or something to that effect. I may have it wrong. And 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 there's a lot of argument that Joseph Smith didn't necessarily see God and Jesus as separate beings um, when he first, you know, when, when the church was first formed, that that was a doctrine that that uh, developed later, let's say, in, in Nauvoo. And so... And so the argument is that, you know, the Book of Mormon seems to have a Trinitary God, you know, a, a single God and Jesus is one kind of idea. And so, of course, when he has the first vision in 1830 or, or recounts it in 1832 before he's developed that doctrine, he's going to also talk about God as a single thing. But as he needs to accommodate for his expanding theology, his first vision story then grows to become more expansive so that God and Jesus are separate and one's introducing the other. Otherwise, how could we have, you know, the, his theory of, you know, theosis? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, you know, I have some sympathy with those who want to read it that way. I think that that's that kind of developmental paradigm has a certain plausibility. I don't buy into it. I think that there is a much stronger case that can be made for the seeds of most of Joseph's theological system being already present in the Book of Mormon in 1830, in many cases in ways that I don't think even he seemed to be self-consciously aware of. I think, for example, if you look at the, the vision of the brother of Jared, Christ appears to have him as an embodied, right, a spiritually embodied deity before he's born. And uh, says that man will be made in the image of that same spirit body. And that seems to me fully consistent with everything that Joseph always taught about God in his lectures on faith, right? Given very early in the Kirtland period, he's already referring to, to God and Christ as separate beings, that God is at a tabernacle of spirit. Christ is a tabernacle of flesh. It's only later that he comes to impute to God a glorified fleshly condition. And that, that does take a little bit of time to develop. Uh, sometimes you do find language in Joseph's 
discourse, sometimes in the Doctrine and Covenants, sometimes in the Book of Mormon, sometimes in his sermons, that smacks in what I think are very superficial ways of conventional theological categories and language. I think that we make a great mistake if we try to derive a kind of whole series of theological implications or background to Joseph's sometimes overly casual use of language. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of expressions in the Book of Mormon that only taken out of context have Calvinist connotations. People many times cite King Benjamin's speech, for example, as an, uh, as, as an instance of an, a reputed Calvinism in the Book of Mormon, where the natural man is an enemy to God. Well, the, the essence of that whole speech of King Benjamin is that we have to become as little children. Now, nothing could possibly be more anathema to Calvinist thought than to say that a little child, unredeemed and unbaptized, is the essence of godliness. So you couldn't have a more emphatically anti-Calvinist position, but because you take one word out of context, you know, you try to form an argument about Calvinism. And I think something similar is happening when you try to impute to Joseph Smith Trinitarianism uh, in the Book of Mormon. I think some of that conventional language is without real theological weight in the way it's being used. Okay. Okay, so so you're saying you have sympathy to the argument that it could be a growing story, but but for you the evidence isn't compelling. That's right. Okay. All right, well, that's fair. Um, okay, so the next the next big one that people have a really hard time with is just his, you know, the the idea is that he started out kind of goofing around with folk magic and and treasure digging and uh and with that you know a belief in the supernatural and and slowly somehow people started believing that he had real power and he even started believing that he had real power even though i don't know that there's ever any evidence that any treasure was ever found somehow people still believed he had the power to find treasure but all this you know all this weird um treasure digging stuff and and thinking about buried indian treasures um sort of makes people think that that um you know that what happened was he did a lot of that until people thought he kind of was was kind of powerful somehow those experiences led him to want to write a book on ancient America and Indians. But but this whole prophet thing was like an afterthought that came, that sprung out of all this, this creepy folk magic kind of stuff. And so what do you think about, how do you reconcile his participation in folk magic, you know, um, and not kind of dismiss his later stuff because it grew out of that? Right. Yeah, I don't know that I have a, a complete handle on how exactly we're to understand his proficiency in folk magical practices. Um, I'm of two minds. On the one hand, I, I wonder if he had a an inflated sense of his own ability to, to, to be a scryer. Because as you say, there are abundant indications from the historical record that he was reputed to have this ability, but neither have I ever come across a source that indicates evidence of him ever actually having found something substantial. So either it was an inflated opinion that he had of his abilities or, you know, I've, I've wondered sometimes if there wasn't something of a, a practical jokester to the whole nature, especially when he describes some of the, you know, the sacrifices of lambs that he persuade or of sheep that he persuaded some of his neighbors to practice in order to right, appease the spirits that were guarding the, the, the treasure. Um, you know, some of the early converts left the church after becoming acquainted with Joseph Smith because they felt his sense of humor was so inconsistent with the calling and right. dignity of a prophet. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's clear that he himself recognized that he had sinned and erred in not divorcing himself more expeditiously from those practices and those associations. And there seemed to be a, a, a difficult process by which he morphed from, you know, the farm boy scryer into the, in, into the prophet. But I also, I, I guess I personally don't share many of the modernist prejudices about folk magic in part 
because that's part of my background. I mean, I grew up on a farm in New York where you can still see to this very day the remains of the holes dug by money diggers, Winchell. They were called Winchell holes on the farm where I lived. Winchell was an associate of Oliver Cowdery. My father himself was renowned among friends and neighbor for his ability to, to water douse for, for water witch for water and was apparently very proficient at it. So, you know, I don't, I, I think it's only a modern prejudice that sees those as either fraudulent on the one hand or, you know, occult and forms of dark arts on the other. I think the lines were much more fluid that separated folk magic from religion. And just to just to kind of make sure everyone understands the term, when you use modernist, you mean us taking a modern sensibility and trying to force retrograde that back, retrofit that back to someone who lived 200 years ago, right? That's right. Taking yeah. our biases and assuming that they should have them too. That's right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, Presentist, I guess, is a better word for that. What did I say? Modernist. Oh, presentist. Okay. All right. Okay. So that that doesn't that doesn't bug you. And the fact that the same seer stone that he used in some of, as I understand it, the same seer stone that he used in some of that tomfoolery, you could say, you know, leads to is used in his quote translation of the Book of Mormon. Is that is that your understanding? And does that bother you? No, I don't know that it bothers me. I think it's it's interesting that Joseph himself is not embarrassed or ashamed of that folk magic past to the extent that he's right. He's very prompt and open about saying to his early associates, apparently, look, this Urim and Thummim just isn't working for me. It hurts my eyes. So at least according to a couple of accounts, he says, I'm not going to use it. I'm more comfortable and familiar with the seer stone that I've been using over the years. And I'm going to stick that in the bottom of a hat to exclude the light. And that works better for me. So for him, you know, supernaturalism, whether the folk magic variety or the Hebraic prophetic variety, uh, in both cases, they, they have the same function. They grant us access to the transcendent and to the divine. But that's kind of weird. Like, why would God provide a Urim and Thummim if Joseph was just going to use a stone? You know? Well, I don't know. Um, good question. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was it was buried with it. It was part of the, you know, it was part of the uh, the kind of the, the paraphernalia that filled the you know the American Ark of the Covenant. Joseph didn't need it. I mean, I guess you could say he he practiced with that and then was able to transfer whatever he learned to the stone. But it, anyway, uh, okay. So, all right. So the Book of Mormon itself. Um, you know, Grant Palmer has this argument, I'm sure you're familiar with it, that, you know, a fifth of the Book of Mormon is like straight, you know, copy from whatever version of the King James Bible that Joseph Smith used, including some of the errors that were in that version. You know what I'm saying? Um, and then, and then a fifth of it was like Joseph's own narrative. It's like his father's dream. And and Joseph's own family and, and that kind of stuff. And then you've got the whole, you know, sort of burned over district uh, um, Protestant sermons that were going on that Joseph's incorporating into like King Benjamin's speech and, and other people's Mosiah's speeches. And then you've got a whole strain about anti-Masonry and, and the whole stuff about, um, oh, I don't know, uh, the anti the the secret combination stuff, you know, Palmer traces to the fascination with the Masonic Lodge and all the, the secret things that were going on. And I think I think he has a fifth sort of source. Oh, oh, and then I don't know, like, you know, um, the view of the Hebrews and that whole um, Solomon Spalding manuscript, just people's attempts to explain where the Native Americans came from and, and making that link back to the Holy land, like for Grant Palmer, that's, those are clearly the sources of the book of Mormon. And, um, right. I think, it, I think the view of the Hebrews is kind of, you know, I mean, it, it, it's kind of suspicious, right? And the Solomon Spalding, maybe it's not the Solomon Spalding stuff, you know, even Fon Brody didn't give it much credibility, but, but, you know, it seems, it seems like it's reasonable to think that 
everyone was trying to answer this question. Joseph was fascinated with it. You yourself said he's kind of a cultural sponge or whatever word you used. That he just kind of brought it all together somehow into a book. Maybe Oliver Cowdery helped him write it secretly. Maybe Sidney Rigdon helped him write it secretly. But regardless, you know, he didn't write it in, in the matter of a month or two. He secretly wrote it with two or three or four other people. People have linked Oliver Cowdery back to um, the author of The View of the Hebrews through whatever congregation he was originally a part of. So, like, it seems like, and I think they've re- they've linked Sidney Rigdon to Solomon Spaulding. And so it seems possible that, that through some type of sort of uh, conspiracy and that, that that this book could have been written secretly by a group of people. What do you what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it all depends on what are the presuppositions with which you begin your investigation of the Book of Mormon. If you're beginning with the assumption either that Joseph was a fraud or that there is no such thing as supernaturalism, then of course you have to come out with some kind of an environmental explanation for how Joseph put this stuff together. And if you're proceeding on that set of assumptions, then these kinds of theories that you're talking about are the most plausible and reasonable ones that that one can suggest, the best that we can come up with. But I'm not disadvantaged in that way. I don't, I don't, I don't have to prima facie exclude supernaturalism or the possibility of, of modern prophets because those possibilities are just part of my worldview, part of my paradigm. And then I, I also come at it from a different perspective because right, my whole life has been devoted to the study of literature, to the, to the reading of texts. And I remember when I first came across Blake Osler's hypothesis about the Book of Mormon as right the expansion, I forget the title, expansion of, a, of an ancient source, which operates along similar lines that Joseph found something, but it was very, very small, and then he expanded it on the basis of you know, his own inspiration and culture and so forth. I just, I, I find those theories utterly incompatible with the perfect beauty and symmetry and organic unity of the Book of Mormon as a literary work. Really? Yeah, absolutely. There's a coherence to it. In the very first, the opening chapters where Lehi has a series of visions and experiences, there are, there are a series of themes that are laid out. Revelation, Christ, and Scripture, and, and Zion in the wilderness. And those themes are carried and executed throughout the book with such perfect consistency from beginning to end, especially the theme of revelation, right? The very first real theological claim that the Book of Mormon makes of, of what I think is real importance is, you know, First Nephi 10, when Nephi is talking about the experience his father had with the vision of the tree of life, and he goes to the Lord and asks if he can have that same vision. The angel appears to him and says, what, don't you believe the words of your father? Well, the entire Old Testament tradition is predicated on the notion that prophecy is given to prophets. Revelation is the province of leaders of nations or peoples. And at that moment, Joseph says, or excuse me, Nephi says, well, yea, thou knowest I believe all the words of my father. And then the angel breaks into this Hosanna shout and gives Nephi his own private personal vision. So at that moment, early in the Book of Mormon, it's established that the major theological divergence of the Book of Mormon from the Christian scriptural canon is the principle of individualized personalized revelation. And that is carried out thematically throughout the book in such a pervasive way. Fathers get revelation for their sons. Generals get revelation as to where the Lamanites are going to attack. Hunters get revelation as to where to look for the deer. Inquirers get answers as to theological questions and doctrinal questions. And then the book ends with a return to that exact same theme, right? Where Moroni makes the extended process to, to, to a futurity. So in that way, and in terms of the Christology that is so pervasive, everything in the book chronologically and thematically is oriented around the centrality of Christ's incarnation. It doesn't make sense to me to try to explain that literary work as a kind of potpourri, a kind of pastiche of all kinds of odds and ends that just come together from a variety of sources. And then other more subtle indications like the the way the audience is so carefully constructed and shifts 
from Nephi's family and posterity to a Lamanite people who were going to displace the Nephites. And gradually, by the end of the Book of Mormon, it's to an unknown audience through whom this record will come by means unknown. This isn't, to my mind, compelling proof that the Book of Mormon is inspired or ancient, but it is compelling proof to my mind that we're, we're working here with a literary work that is cohesive, coherent, and, and not to be explained, and as I said, in terms of this kind of ad hoc constitution or mosaic. I think in this regard, Grant Hardy has done a magnificent job of, of showing that there is a, a complexity and a literary sophistication to this work that uh, even Fawn Brody and others were far from fully appreciating. Does it, does it bug you that the, that the Nephites were able to learn and rejoice of Christ 600 years before his birth, but but no one on the other side got to do that? Oh, well, you know, there, there are, I, to my mind, plausible explanations for why that might have been the case. First of all, it's significant that every time something about Christ is said in the Book of Mormon, there is a self-consciousness on the part of the speaker that this is unusual knowledge. And so it's always framed in terms of an angel brought this knowledge to me, or through revelation I learned this, or reading this ancient record I found this. or So it's not just a kind of commonplace knowledge that is thrown about in the Book of Mormon. Second of all, everything in the Book of Mormon passes through the hands of, a, of an editor in the 5th century AD, presumably, which means that it's possible, though I don't know that this is the case, that, that there is added detail put in after the fact, once Moroni is able to see and recognize, oh, this is what those vague prophecies were alluding to. Why don't I just fill in some more of the details? So, sure, there are some inconsistencies between the level of specificity of the Christology in the Book of Mormon and that of other scriptural traditions. And I find that unusual and striking, but I don't find it an insurmountable problem. If you think about it, it would be a it could be viewed as a as a glaringly obvious um, thing that that might have occurred to Joseph to to not try and talk too much about Christ prior to his birth <laughs> with a bunch of Jews, right? <laughs> well, one would think so. That's the striking thing about Joseph is that again and again he chose the most difficult possible way to perpetrate a fraud, right? Why not? follow the path of Jacob Burma or Emanuel Swedenborg or a thousand other mystics who said, well, I fell into this dream trance and, and this book was revealed to me. Why pretend that you've got an actual physical artifact that you, you have to prove to people exists? Um, why, why develop right, a Christology that is completely out of sync with what would be more plausible in terms of an ancient American record? So, yeah, there's a certain perverseness to his self-destructiveness if he was a fraud. Yeah, because because I guess this is credible to say he brought his family in. If, if it were a fraud, right, if it were a conspiracy, he brought his wife into it. He brought his parents into it. He brought his siblings into it. He brought the, you know, Martin Harris into it, Oliver Cowdery, the Whitmers, all those people, and nobody nobody broke the agreement right well that that to my mind it's one of the oldest defenses made of the book of mormon and it's always been i think the most compelling the fact that so many of those witnesses defected from the church that broke personally with joseph smith only enhances the the value of their testimony with regard to the book of mormon because that would have only added additional weight to expose the fraud and yet yeah, not a single one ever did. Well, I guess I guess my only argument to that would be they'd be they'd be impugning themselves, right? So if so if uh, who was one of the three witnesses? David Whitmer. If David Whitmer goes off and and says, "Yeah, we just made up the book," then doesn't everyone hate him for the rest of his life? Well, I don't know. That's possible, I guess. But in the history of frauds, we've seen people pretty pretty comfortable with exposing fraud after its utility in their lives had passed or once they became disaffected from their colleagues in crime. Um, certainly, in, it seems to me that 
it would have spoken, at least in that contemporary context, they might have been seen as heroes for coming clean and breaking completely and lifting the lid off the Mormon conspiracy. Yeah, you'd think that at least one person would, right? At least you'd one think. of them. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it wasn't like David Whitmer just said, you know, he basically supported a bunch of stuff, but also didn't agree with some other things. And so why would he be criticizing on the one hand, but then supporting other parts of the story? Yeah, and it wasn't just the eight witnesses, I mean, the 11 witnesses, it was it was others, you know, William McClellan's another great example, right? Times Joseph's secretary, very close confidant, right? Absolutely devoted, breaks with Joseph Smith completely, and enemies of the church correspond with him and ask him to help attack the church in the Book of Mormon, and he writes back and he says, oh, don't touch the Book of Mormon, that's the apple of my eye. And Joseph might have been a scoundrel, but that Book of Mormon is true, and, and that's the case. Really? Yeah. And I, I, I see this pattern again and again in early church history of defectors and apostates who break with the church and yet can't break with their, their testimony of the Book of Mormon. And yet, I think I remember you writing in People of Paradox that the Book of Mormon goes for largely unread within the church for about 150 years. I mean, not totally, but kind of largely, right? Yeah, Parley Pratt's the only church figure I know of who really, really explored the Book of Mormon and tried to, to, to use it as a basis for his preaching. But even he failed to develop any of its theological richness and, and any of its theological innovations. I mean, I think the most radical thing about the Book of Mormon theologically is its denial of original sin. It's, it's you know, the fortunate fall idea. And yet nobody seems to have noticed that in the first hundred years of the church. Um, hmm. The Book of Mormon functioned almost exclusively as an artifactual evidence of the reality of Joseph Smith's prophetic calling. Not a scriptural text. Not a scriptural text. In fact, what Brigham Young and many other first-generation converts said was, well, the Book of Mormon was what I would have expected it to be, fully consistent with the Bible. Nothing new there. Why pay any more attention to its content? Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay, so where does that take us? So in the translation of the Book of Mormon, I guess the biggest question I have there is if Joseph's going to translate with a peepstone and a hat, which by all contemporary accounts, that's how the Book of, you know, the, the, the Book of Mormon that we have today, that's the primary means by which he translated the book. Why would God even need to give him the plates why not just have him channel it and there's no, no need for plates if he's not even going to use the plates in the translation? So just to make it clear, for those who haven't heard, the understanding is that Joseph took a hat, put a peepstone in it, stuck his face in it, dictated the words to the scribe, and the plates often weren't even in the room. Now, do I have it wrong? Nope, that's right. Okay. That's right. So what we see is a perfectly consistent transition from stage to stage. He begins, he's got the plates, he's examining them, right? He's, he makes a transcript of, of, a transcription of part of them. Um, he seems to be struggling to, to translate. He's using the Urim and Thummim. Gradually, he's, he's not even looking at the plates. He's got his head in a hat with a peepstone. And then, right, the Book of Mormon, the plates themselves aren't even in the same room. And then, of course, by the time he gets to the Book of Abraham, which is another subject, but by the time he gets to that, he doesn't even right, pretend to be using any kind of instrument. So one could see that as a kind of progression that Joseph makes from needing some kind of a physical medium through which God makes his will known to him to an ability to have unmediated direct access to these revelations. So, in some strange way, he needed something physical to boot to kickstart the process. That's that seems to me a good hypothesis that would explain his transition through these different mediums. Yeah, because again, why is he doing all this? If he's just making up a book, why doesn't he just produce the book? Why does he have to like go through this spectacle of translating? Yeah, exactly. For everybody. I mean, I guess it's because he has to tie it to actual plates because he wants people to believe the story, right? Yeah, but 
like I said, you can you can have the story without having the physical artifact it comes from. But um, but the physical artifact makes it real, like you say. It's it's the difference between he made it up and Noah. There were real artifacts, right? Yeah, possibly so. I mean, one contemporary example of fraud is uh, probably the most successful one of that preceding generation was uh, James McPherson, who purported to have discovered some ancient Gaelic manuscripts, which he translated into the poems of Ossian. And he publishes these in the late 1700s in England to, to just fantastic reception and acclaim. And these poems are still published all the way into the early 20th century. And there were a few skeptic readers like Samuel Johnson who thought there just wasn't the ring of, of ancient authenticity to those translations. And so he asked him to, to produce the originals, which McPherson said he would do, and then he never did. And so gradually the consensus grew that that was indeed a fraud. But his poems were popular nonetheless. <laughs> All right. Um... Let's see. So, so he creates the Book of Mormon, and he starts the church. What do you make of Grant Palmer's um, assertions about in 1838 when the church was in crisis, the witnesses were interviewed and didn't confess to actually um, experiencing the angels or, or the plates with their physical hands or eyes, but with their spiritual eyes. Talk about the background and what you make of that, if you can. Yeah, I, I again, that strikes me as just a red herring. And um, <laughs> if I were attacking the church, I'd find a lot more compelling arguments to make than, than that. Restate, I, restate his argument, if you don't mind, because I, I clobbered it. Well, if I'm understanding you correctly, and this is not just Grant Palmer, but any number of critics have pointed out that some of the witnesses later indicated that they had seen the plates with spiritual and not physical eyes, um, as if that undermines the veracity and potency of their testimonies. Um, I don't think so. If, if you're just familiar with New Testament language, if you're familiar with Paul's own description of his visions, right? When, when he talks about being caught up into the seventh heaven, he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I couldn't say. Well, what does that tell us? That, that, that tells us that for people like Paul, who are having some kind of a visionary experience in which they have access to a level of reality that is outside the normal phenomenal world, they aren't sure exactly how it is that they've experienced that or how to describe it. A dream or a vision seems inadequate, and yet it's not exactly the same as when I look and see you or this desk or chair in front of me. And so there's a kind of groping for language that is adequate to explain what it is they're experiencing and how they know that. And I think the language of the witnesses is fully consistent with that tradition of trying to find language for what is, uh, for, you know, an aspect of experience that falls out outside the normal, the normal kind of power of language to express. Um, if that fact that they were describing it as a spiritual rather than physical manifestation undermined the legitimacy of the experience, then they certainly would have taken the next step of questioning the legitimacy of that experience. That's a good point. But none of them did. And so it's a non-issue. It was a non-issue for them. And I think it should be a non-issue. Because they never they never went back and said, hey, maybe, maybe it was. Exactly. Exactly. And when Joseph describes his first vision, you know, he, he talks about when he came, when I came to myself. What does that mean when I came to myself? That, that sounds like you're waking up. Well, there again, I think he probably was not sure himself if he was in vision, in dream. Did I enter their realm? Did God enter mine? How do we explain that? I don't know. Was it all and in I, his I, mind? I was it, you know, who knows, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or in another realm. Okay, so you... I mean, I, I've heard even, I think Daniel Peterson say that the the witnesses in his mind were very credible. And then there's, you know, the Mark Twain quote where he's joking about, well, if the Whitmers, if the Whitmers and the Smiths say that it's true, then we must believe them, you know. <laughs> do, yeah. do, you, do you find the, do you find the first witnesses credible? The, 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 the three witnesses and the witnesses credible? 
Well, sure. I, I, I people, Oliver Cowdery, I think, especially because he seems uh, well, but also David Whitmer. They, they were the most, I think, stable, educated, respected, and um, also I thought manifested lives of great integrity throughout their careers, both inside and outside the church. So if every single witness had been a member of Joseph Smith's family, then that would be cause to be suspicious. But, you know, you've got several that were and, and you have others that weren't. And of course, it's going to be inevitable that in the first few months of the church's existence, the first people you're going to talk to and convert are going to be your friends and neighbors, your friends, family and relatives. So that's rather, it seems to me, uh, what one would expect. Right. So to talk, talk quickly about, I, I, you know, the book, book of Abraham, basically, um, we didn't know the source, but then, you know, the, the scrolls that Joseph had purchased, I guess, in Kirtland show up in a museum in the 1960s, and Egyptologists kind of uh, identify quickly what they are, and according to Egyptologists, they bear no resemblance to any, and no part of, no part of whatever scrolls remain uh, bear any resemblance to what we have in the book of Abraham. It's instead just some funeral texts that are buried with every, you know, Pharaoh that gets buried in Egypt. Right. Um, how do you, I mean, that, that, that one issue alone is a death blow to many a testimony. Is it credible? How do you work through that? Well, I don't, you know, I, I don't, purport to have any expertise certainly in the field of Egyptology and I haven't I, I don't I, I let me just put it this way Harold Bloom believes that the most or he's written to the extent that the most compelling and inexplicable prophetic manifestations in Joseph Smith's career were his production of the Abrahamic material now I don't know how I don't know the process involved by which he produced the book of Abraham. I think it's entirely possible that prophecy isn't something that prophets produce. Prophecy is something that happens to us. Revelation is something that, that, that erupts in a person's life or mind. I think Joseph himself may have been mistaken as to the process by which he was receiving whatever it is he, he, he was receiving. but. And, and here, I think Hugh Nibley was right. I think it's, you know, it, the, the case is the same with the Book of Mormon or with the Abrahamic material. Read the material and then, and, and, then, and then judge it on the basis of what you've read, not on the basis of the purported process by which we got it. I don't know how Joseph received it. I don't know what the relationship is between the manuscripts that he bought and the finished product. In my mind, the most plausible explanation is that whatever he was looking at and working with was a catalyst and a prompt, just as the Urman Thummim had been, or the physical presence of the plates had been. But the finished product, I mean, if you read the Book of Abraham, it strikes me as something that is so authentically within the tradition of Abrahamic writings, as we now know them through a whole pseudepigraphal tradition, that I I just don't concern myself too much with the process by which he got them. So for you, for you, he could have thought that he was translating from the papyra, but in reality, channeling something God wanted us all to read, and and there was really no direct connection. You're that's you're okay with that scenario. Absolutely. In yeah. fact, you, you, do you think that's the likely scenario? Well, it's one likely scenario. My understanding, and I could be wrong, but my understanding is that, you know, one account of those original papyri scrolls has them being 50 to 60 feet in length. They unrolled and they went from one end of the mansion house to the other. And yet all that we've recuperated from the Metropolitan Museum, it would all fit on a small tabletop. So, you know, we don't, I don't know that we're absolutely certain as to exactly what scrolls was he working with and what connections might there be to other material that we haven't recovered. Um, but my best guess is that you know, the, the, the scrolls were just a prompt to a revelatory experience he had. And in your mind, he might have not even understood what they were, what he was doing. That's right. That's right. Isn't that kind of crazy, though? It is crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> the whole, the what, whole what about Mormonism isn't? Once we go down the rabbit hole, <laughs> we've gone down the rabbit hole. And... 
in Mormonism, you've got to go down the rabbit hole. But as Harold Bloom says, <laughs> all revealed religion takes you down the rabbit hole, right? <laughs> I mean, and, uh, you know, it's like, you know, you didn't mention the Book of Moses, which there again, what, what text is he working from to get to get the Book of Moses? But anybody that can read the Enoch material and not be profoundly moved by it. And again, you read, right, the other Enoch materials that have come forth since the mid and late 19th century. And the consistency of his version with these others, not to mention just the transcendent beauty of the weeping God story. Um, I don't care where it came from. I don't care what was the process by which it was transmitted to him. I'm just glad we have it. So you find a lot of value in the Pearl of Great Price for Mormonism. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's funny because this is we're going back a little bit, but but you're right. You're down the rabbit hole as soon as you as soon as you start that Joseph communicated with God. So using a Urim and Thummim with a breastplate to translate the golden plates is is no more is no less crazy than having a peepstone in a hat, right? That's but, right. But the who I want to know this. Who in the church's history decided that the peepstone in the hat story was more embarrassing and somehow less credible and decided that we needed to to uh, misrepresent what happened? I don't know enough about the history of the editing of the history of the church, but it strikes me that it might have been B.H. Roberts, um, might have come later with Joseph Fielding Smith. I, I don't know. But I've always felt that... So, you know, so where does this, that come from? Where? Well, I mean, if you read in the history of the church, you know, the, the kind of official church history, I don't believe you find reference to the peepstone in the hat there. So it, did B.H. Roberts potentially misrepresent or just not know? Did that I I, I don't know. Like forgotten? I said, I think he edited the first version of the history of the church. Um, but I, just, I haven't looked into that. I don't know when that story, when it, when it drops out. Wouldn't that be or a even, cool thing to study, to figure out? Yeah, of course. I don't know that you can really say that it dropped out. I don't. It was never a part of Joseph's history. I mean, we, we get those descriptions from contemporary eyewitnesses that Roberts and others might not have even had access to. But I've thought many times since that, you know, if you were to teach a primary class of 10-year-old kids and say, you know, this is how Joseph translated the Book of Mormon, and you've got a picture of him looking at a peepstone in a hat. The 10-year-old kids would go, oh, that's cool. Right, exactly. But you tell somebody who's 50 years old, and they go, well, that's undignified and inconsistent with what I learned, who's been lying to me. Exactly. <laughs> so we ought to get the story out correctly the first time. Really early, right? Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah, man. Can can somebody go talk to someone to fix that, please? <laughs> I volunteered, but I don't think anybody heard. <laughs> okay, so Kinderhook plates. I'm gonna assume you're gonna chalk that down to prophetic fallibility. Yeah. Yeah. And hubris and whatever. Yeah. yeah. But how do we trust Abraham, Book of Abraham, but not, you know, why why I mean, why would God let Joseph think he was doing a translation? I mean, why didn't God stop him, right? I guess you can't get in the mind of God, but you see what I'm saying, right? Well, I don't really, because, I mean, what we have with the Book of Abraham and with the Book of Moses both are really important documents that I think we're clearly meant to have and that strengthen and edify and enlarge our understanding of, of the gospel and of its eternal dispensations and, it's, you know, that it was taught to Adam and the true nature of God. I mean, these are some of the most important things that we have in the Mormon in the Mormon faith. Um and I just don't know that we, I, I just don't know how relevant the actual mechanics by which those came to us are. I mean, you know, the Christians don't know anything about how the, you know, the older New Testament canons came, well, they know a lot, but they don't know everything about how those canons came together. We don't know anything about the methods by which Old Testament prophets received their revelations or by which Paul wrote his letters. That doesn't seem to be a, a concern to anybody. Hmm. But the fact that Joseph would kind of like go, oh, let me translate these and think that he's really doing a translation. Well, I find that admirable. I mean, what is he doing? He's studying, he, he's, you know, he, you look at 
his journal during those Nauvoo years, and he's studying German so he can read Luther's Bible, and he's studying Hebrew. He's taking Hebrew classes so he can read the Old Testament in the original, and he gets this these manuscripts, and he's studying and trying to construct some kind of an Egyptian alphabet and grammar. He's trying to make sense out of it. I mean, that's one of the things I love about Joseph Smith. He'd already proven that he could just receive revelations virtually at will, and yet he's trying to do the hard intellectual work of being a scholar and learn how to translate ancient documents. I mean, how, how admirable is that? So how, um, how do you feel about those who try and and characterize Joseph as this uneducated yokel farm boy? Well, I think he, you know, we know that he was relatively uneducated. We know that he was very self-conscious about that. If you read his letters in the original, it becomes abundantly clear just how poor his schooling was. Right. But at the same time, you know, we, I, I think it was his mother, Lucy, that said he didn't read widely, but he read deeply. And I think he had this capacity for immense concentration and focus. And he also had this absolute intellectual courage that enabled him to think, you know, the unthinkable. I mean, in the history of Western thought, the occasions on which we find human beings capable of stepping outside their paradigm and thinking the hitherto unthinkable are so rare. You know, when you do, you're, you're an Einstein or you're a Copernicus. Well, in the theological world, I think you're a Joseph Smith to to consider the possibilities of what hitherto had been absolutely unthinkable as propositions. You know, his whole, his statement about by proving contrarieties, truth is made manifest. I think one way to read that is to push ideas as far to the logical absurdity as you can and see where that takes you and what works and what doesn't. When do the boundaries of, of, of truth and logic push back against you in your explorations of these ideas? I mean, what, what an adventuresome mind he had. Hmm. Yeah, so a great mind, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a, a gifted mind, probably. Yeah, and I think this is probably what Michael Coe was referring to. I think this is certainly what Harold Bloom was referring to when he talks about Joseph Smith's religion-making imagination. He doesn't mean his capacity to weave a fanciful tale. He means his ability to think on a mythopoeic scale, uh, a capacity to rewrite the entire narrative of cosmological history, past, present, and future. Um, you know, and, and on, on, in that sense, I mean, he was, he was the equal of, a, of a, you know, any of the greatest poets of this day or any other. Hmm. And you've studied a little bit about poetry, right? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, you know, that's ultimately what, one of the things I just, I love about Mormonism is the story that it tells that begins in these distant eons of the past with these, you know, swirling entities, these intelligences that then are gathered together under the, under the nurturing arm of Elohim and, and, and are given the opportunity to pr pr advance through the eternities and, and uh, into this future that is fleshed out in, in exquisite, if bold and daunting detail. You know, if you look up how theology is defined in 19th century handbooks. It's defined as man's attempt to understand the plan of salvation from the fall of Adam till the end of the world. And Joseph Smith said, oh, but that's such a small chapter in cosmic history. And he, he races back both before and, and long after that brief interval in, in order to give us the scope of the whole. And, uh, you know, it's a daunting vision that he presents us with. It's audacious. And, it's, uh, it's fantastic. All right. Well, good. Well, what do you think about um, the, we talked about this a bit, but the the incorporation of the Masonic Lodge stuff into the, the temple ceremony. Like, a lot of people just say, he's just ripping stuff off and throwing it together, and, you know, it's, it's just kind of plagiarism. Well, sure, it's plagiarism. All great poetry is plagiarism. Um, and all great religion is plagiarism, especially in the Mormon conception of things, because it's not possible to create anything new, right? It was all known to Adam. There's this ur-gospel that we're all trying to reach back and grope toward and reconstitute in its entirety and fullness. So if that's the paradigm that you begin with, then there's no such thing as novelty or innovation in, in religious thought. We're just trying to recuperate. Um, 
there are other people like Michael Smith is one who are doing really interesting work on the influence of Masonry and early Mormonism. I certainly don't know the full story, but you know, I'm reminded of a, of a priest that I used to work with who came back from a mass he had just celebrated where he used beer for the wine and potato chips for the wafer. And I remember at the time I thought that was a little bit over the top and blasphemous. <laughs> and, you know, to some extent, maybe it was. But the point he was trying to make to his congregation was it doesn't matter what symbols we use. It doesn't matter. And we could rewrite the temple ritual tomorrow and use Boy Scout signs and handshakes, and it wouldn't matter. It's so immaterial. What are the actual, right, physical aspects of the ritual that we go through in the temple? Joseph found the Masonic ritual adaptable in ways that suited his purposes. He seemed to think that the Masonic ritual was an actual, if corrupted, inheritance from an ancient endowment. Now, the best scholarship today believes that masonry is a fairly late invention out of whole cloth in the 17th century, right? I don't know where masonry comes from. I don't know what its relationship is to an original Adamic endowment, and I don't care because I don't go to the, to, to the temple because I believe that the actual ritual I'm engaged in has any inherent value. What has value are the covenants that we make, the promises that we receive, and the relationships that are eternalized. And uh, so I just say, well, bravo to Joseph Smith for finding a system that was quick and readily adaptable to his purposes. So, so the Masonic stuff, you know, the ritual is sort of like the delivery vehicle for the doctrine and the covenants. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. That's uh, right. of, of the temple. That's right. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a good expression. It's the delivery system, and, and the delivery system is immaterial. Yeah, I, I don't think... care what kind of a hypodermic you use, as long as you've got the right antidote in it. Right, right. Thank you for joining us today on Mormon Stories. Music today was provided by the Saber Rattlers. Check them out at saber-rattlers.com. Mormon Stories logo was generously donated by StudioCase.com. Thanks for listening. Come, come, ye saints, no toil nor labor fear, but with joy wend your way. Though hard to you this journey may appear, grace shall be. As your day Just better far For us to strive Our useless cares From us to drive To the sand Your hearts will swell
our journeys through.